Children are dismissed for Children's Church. Um, Would everyone else please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, chapter 1. This morning we are going to come to a close of chapter 1 of Paul's second letter to Timothy. And themes that we've been looking at really all the way back from verse 3 through the end are united. Um, in this first chapter, Paul, you remember, lays out his heart to Timothy. He's in jail. He misses him terribly. He's hoping he'll come to him soon. And he encourages Timothy to stir up the gift within him, to not be afraid. In fact, words relating to fear and shame and power really um, fill this section. Those are the themes that we're looking at in verses 3 to 15 is, is Paul's concern, Paul's encouragement that Timothy not become afraid, not become ashamed, but trusting in God's power to, to boldly stir up his gifts to serve, to come to him, to finish the course. And last week, Pastor Daniel talked a lot about the relationship between shame and, and fear and power. This week, Paul closes this chapter giving Timothy an example that he's well aware of. This isn't pie in the sky that we're talking about, but our, our, our faith or our lack thereof, our confidence and pride or our shame will affect the way we live and it will affect the gospel as the world sees it and it will affect others. And so this morning, we're looking at the ashamed and unashamed of the gospel, two examples that Paul gives. And there's an implicit encouragement. There's an implicit exhortation in them. You can't miss it. He's just told Timothy not to be ashamed, but to hold firmly, guard what's been entrusted to him. And then we'll read our text this morning, chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. You are aware that all in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hymogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household Onesiphorus. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy on the day of the Lord. And you well know all the service that he rendered at Ephesus. And so here are these two examples. An example of, of, of being ashamed of Paul, being ashamed of the gospel, turning away and yet one who courageously and compassionately comes, not ashamed of Paul's chains, not ashamed of the gospel, and encourages him. So we're going to look at this in three points. First, we see a cowardly example of the ashamed. A cowardly example of the ashamed. Paul's been talking about fear and shame this, this whole time. In fact, let me just start back reading from verse 7. Verse 6, actually. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, 
which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And so here's Paul's encouragement and exhortation to Timothy. Do not be afraid. Do not be ashamed. Trust in the power of the Holy Spirit. Trust in God's power to keep and guard you. And then after saying that Paul is confident, guard, after Paul says that he is confident that God will guard what Paul has entrusted to him, he then turns around and says, oh, Timothy, now the real question is, will you be faithful to guard what's been entrusted to you? And like all good exhortations, illustrations are helpful. And so these closing verses, Paul turns Timothy's mind to what he knows about already. He says that very clearly in verse 15, you are aware. These are not new things. The sad testimony of Phygelus and Hymogenes and the, the Asian Christians is well known to Timothy. The reason for that is what Paul means by Asia, almost certainly, is the Roman province in Asia, which today would be modern-day Turkey. So the blank there, Asia equals modern-day Turkey. We're not talking about an entire continent. We are still talking about a large geographic area. And the center, the central church in this region was the church at Ephesus, the church where Paul had um, left Timothy back in 1 Timothy, the church that later church history tells us the apostle John was to minister at. And what a sad testimony it is that this great church, the Christians in the region, turned from Paul. Now, it's possible that Paul means every single last one, but we know Timothy remains faithful. We know Nesiphorus remains faithful. It's possible they're just removed from the area. Or it might mean the overwhelming majority. And, and either way, you can only imagine the, the crippling pain and discouragement this would give the Apostle Paul. And in the context, I think it becomes clear why it is they turned away from him. Uh, after all, Paul contrasts their turning away in verse 16, with Anesiphorus, who often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. And so by implication, I think, we can see that these Christians in Asia were embarrassed of the Apostle Paul's imprisonment. They were embarrassed and ashamed to be associated with him. Persecution was now beginning to seriously rise. It is from this imprisonment the church history tells us that, that Paul will be executed, beheaded in Rome. And so, whereas years earlier there was more tolerance for Christianity, there was more willingness to deal with it, the persecution is beginning to mount, and the church is ashamed of Paul. And last week, Pastor Daniel talked about the way fear and shame can work together. One way it works is you begin to believe what others think. And so if you're in a culture that says Christianity is evil, Christianity is um, seditious, and the reason for that, of course, was because the emperor thought he was a god. If you believe there's only one god, 
and his son Jesus Christ, then you are necessarily, in some sense, treasonous from the Roman point of view. And so you can begin to believe that. You hear that time and time again. You hear that this is wrong. You can begin to believe that. Another way that fear and shame can work is this. It's, it's not that I'm doubting my faith in Jesus Christ, but I begin to believe that your praise and your approbation and your acceptance is more valuable, is more joy-giving than God's praise. To put it biblically, I begin to fear man and not God. I begin to fear the reproach of man and not the reproach of God. I want the praise of man more than I want the praise of God. I would rather have my neighbors and my friends and my culture think that I am a wise, good man, even if it grieves the heart of God. And so there's always unbelief involved in this, whether it's us actually believing the lie of the culture or whether it's our fear growing more strongly than our love for the Lord. We don't know exactly what the context was. What we know is they deserted him. The Apostle Paul, after writing a letter to them, spending time planting the church there, sending his men there, is abandoned by them. And Paul names two of the ringleaders. We don't know anything about them. They don't show up anywhere else in the Scripture. What a sad testimony to have your name recorded in the Bible this way. But Phygelus and Hermogenes probably leaders in this turning away, probably people who are of some repute. We assume that's why Paul names them. They might have been elders, deacons, people Paul knew, people Timothy knew and had loved, just turned from him. And so all that Paul's been saying about don't be ashamed, Timothy, don't, don't shrink back in fear. God didn't give you a spirit of fear, but of power. Be willing to suffer. All of that is leading to this example. Don't be like them. Here is a crystal clear example, if you will. This isn't pie in the sky. This is real. If you become ashamed, if you become fearful, you will act like this. That's what Paul is telling Timothy. Paul himself is used to this, sadly, used to this type of treatment. Um, in Philippians Back in his first imprisonment, he writes this in chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, but not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. What Paul said was in his first imprisonment, there were some who meant to kind of throw salt in his wounds. While the apostle Paul has been benched, they're going to go out and they're to get the spotlight. And Paul says, look, as long as Jesus Christ is preached, I rejoice whether people are doing it sincerely or people are doing it from wrong motives. If the gospel is going out, I rejoice. This, this sadly for the apostle Paul, if you were to study his life or try to reconstruct it from the Bible, this type of abandonment is no new thing. It's no new thing. Read, read 2 Corinthians. Um, where Paul just puts his heart out there with the church that has wounded him and hurt him, and he feels compelled for the sake of the gospel to defend his ministry, and you can tell he hates doing it because he doesn't want to commend himself. But a man who poured himself into so many people, who planted so many churches, who gave himself to so many people time and time again is abandoned, turned from and alone. 
Which leads us now to our next point, the suffering and sorrow this caused Paul. And you just read the letter and you get a feel for Paul's suffering. He's all alone. He's cold. And he really wants to see Timothy before he dies. But throughout Paul's life, this type of suffering was huge for him. And, and Paul, for all of his intellect and all of his, his clear writing and his logic and his brilliance seen in books like Romans, was a people person. In fact, chapter 16 of Romans contains 33 separate greetings by name to people. Paul cared about people. This is all the more impressive when you realize Paul had never been to Rome at the time of the writing of Romans. So these are people he's met in his travels, people who he's met and remembered, and he knows who they are, and he writes to them. In fact, it might surprise you to learn that, that the most frequently given command in the New Testament is to greet one another. A friend of mine read through the New Testament trying to categorize all the different types of commands. What was the most frequently given command in the New Testament? And he said far and away, it was greet one another. Paul cared about people. Paul loved people. He was passionate about people. So his greatest earthly love then is the church. His greatest earthly love is the church. Look, look over in chapter 2, verse 10. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul suffers for the sake of the elect, for God's people. He suffers for the church. He pours himself out for the church. In Philippians, he says, I want to die. I want to go be with Jesus, but, but you guys need me. And so convinced of that, I'm going to stay. And that is the measure of this man's love for the church. And so consequently then, if, if, if his greatest earthly love is the church, when you begin to think, what, what was the greatest suffering the Apostle Paul experienced? And this guy suffered. This guy was whipped, beaten, stoned and left for dead, shipwrecked, bitten by a poisonous snake. If, if you think Paul's going through his catalog of suffering, what, what do you think was at the top of the list? Well, we don't have to guess. Tur turn over in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, where the Apostle Paul, really sort of with his back up against the wall, it feels forced to defend his ministry. And the reason why is because in 2 Corinthians, there's a, there's a leadership in the church at Corinth who are perverting the gospel. And what they have to do to do that is launch an all-out character assassination on the Apostle Paul. And throughout the letter, Paul has already rebuked the Corinthians, written a harsh letter, and much of the church has returned to him. But there's still this group in Corinth who, who are perverting the gospel and still slandering him. And, and it's not that Paul wants to defend himself because he's upset, but but his character stands by the message he teaches, and so he needs to defend his character so that the gospel he preaches will be untarnished. And you can sense that in here as, as we read in 2 Corinthians 11, 21 to 30. But I want you to pay attention to all the suffering this man has experienced and what he puts clearly at the top of the list. <clears throat> I have been a fool. You have forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. I'm reading the wrong chapter, aren't I? I'm reading chapter 12. 
See, it's just all good stuff. So, okay. Like, when is he going to get to the list? Oh, he already did. Okay. Okay. Chapter 11, verse 21. Here we go. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I, I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And you say, good night. And then check, look what he says next. And apart from these other things, <laughs> apart from these other, apart from these things, are you kidding me? There is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? What was the number one suffering the Apostle Paul experienced? It was his concern for the church. It was the pain he felt when betrayed by the church. Paul's greatest suffering wasn't from those outside. It wasn't from unbelievers. It was from the church. If you think about it, that's true in life. The suffering that we'll receive from those we love, from those we have relationships with, will be far greater than the suffering we receive from the hands of strangers. C.S. Lewis said, to love is to open yourself up to hurt. If you want to protect yourself from all hurt, don't love anyone, not even a cat. <laughs> Pastor Joel says, especially a cat. <laughs> um, and so, so when Paul's talking about suffering, he's talking just as much about the suffering that comes from within the body as from without if not more so. His greatest suffering, the church. His greatest earthly love, the church. His greatest suffering, the church. And you can see the consequence, the shame and fear these Christians has had on Paul. The suffering it's brought to him. No man is an island. No, no, no one of us lives our faith in a vacuum. It can become popular to talk about, well, it's just between Jesus and me. No, it's not. We've seen in Ephesians, the body only builds itself up in love when every part is working, when every joint is functioning properly. And here, the faithlessness and the cowardice of some will cause suffering on others. It matters. It's not just between you and the Lord. Your faithfulness, your walk affects the body. There's a ripple effect. And so we see the cowardly example of those who are ashamed. Thankfully, Paul gives us a second example, a much more positive one. And we see the courageous example of the unashamed. The courageous example of the unashamed. 
We see that in verses 16 to 18. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me. He was not ashamed of my chains, but when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered me. And here's another person we know literally nothing about. The only other place Onesiphorus is mentioned is in 2 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul tells Timothy to greet his household. And that's it. But again, what a wonderful testimony to have for yourself in Scripture. He apparently left Asia, sought out Paul in Rome. Apparently, Paul's prison cell was hard, difficult to find. The Greek stresses the labor he went through. Um, you remember Paul's first imprisonment. He sort of had a good treatment. He was housed in Felix's household, and he was brought to Rome, and, and I'm sure it'd be easier to find, but this time, being treated more as um, the scum of the earth, he was just in a hole somewhere, some cell somewhere, chained. You can picture this, this man looking for him, and, and the other Christians either being tempted to associate themselves with Paul or wondering who he is. It took some work. You can imagine this guy thinking, well, I gave it a good shot. I tried looking for Paul for two days, but he keeps searching and he keeps searching and he finds him. And so Paul, Paul is, is rejoicing over the unashamed compassion of Onesiphorus. He loved Paul, and he loved the gospel, and despite what everyone else did, this man, this faithful man, comes and he searches him out to comfort him. And so Paul speaks first of his repeated refreshment. He often refreshed me. I was not ashamed of my chains. And it, this could be a mixture of both physical sustenance. In, in Roman prison, you, you pretty much lived off of what people brought you. They didn't have cable TV or gyms or or uh, vending machines. You pretty much were tied up and chained, and, and if people brought you food, you had food. And probably more likely is this the spiritual refreshment, the fellowship that Paul got from this brother. And again, I just want to remind you with this, no man is an island. We need each other. The Apostle Paul is great and as mighty and as godly and as wise as he was. He needed other believers to encourage him. If you don't think you need other believers to encourage you, you're wrong. You're wrong. The Apostle Paul needs encouragement. The Apostle Paul has already said, Oh, Timothy, come see me. I long to see you. We need to be in fellowship with each other. Um, this is why internet church doesn't work. It's a great, it's a great you know, for, for, for some encouragement throughout the week, but we need to come together. We need to see each other. We need to be in fellowship with one another. We need to refresh one another. I was just able to chat with a missionary friend of mine um, over in another continent that I cannot name. And we had some refreshment this morning in fellowship. It was, it was good. It was good. But not only this, but you know, I can't help but thinking that Onesiphorus is living out the, the parable or the story the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 25. You know this. Speaking of the great judgment, then the king will say to those on the right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. 
Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? The king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. I have to wonder if Nesiphorus realized that as he was ministering to the Apostle Paul, that he was ministering in some sense to the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, this is what's at stake with our faithfulness and our shame. If we will be courageous, trusting God's power, if we will shrink back. Paul is repeatedly refreshed. Because of this, Paul blesses Nesiphorus' household and himself. Verse his household in verse 16. May the Lord grant mercy to the household Vanessaphorus. Now, this is probably because they were left, in some sense, put off or, or um, inconvenienced by him leaving them. So I'm assuming they're still in Asia, in Turkey, and he came to visit Paul, and, and either he's on his way back, or some commentators think perhaps he died. We don't know. But he's separated from his household, so Paul thinks of his household. I've been so enriched and so refreshed and so encouraged by Anesiphorus' fellowship with me, I want to pray a blessing on his household who's had to go without him for these weeks and months. And then Paul wishes a prayer for, for him himself. Verse 18, may the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. Now, there's a play of words here. Paul has just said that when he got to Rome and he arrived in Rome, he immediately began looking and searching for Paul and after much labor, he found him. And then Paul says, flipping that over, I hope that on the day of the Lord, he will find mercy from the Lord. The two references to Lord here almost certainly refer to the, the Son and then the Father. Another testimony to the deity of Christ. So Paul is grateful. Paul is thankful. Paul wants good things and mercy and grace to happen to Nesiphorus. It's quite possible that Paul has in mind the beatitude found in Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So Paul, thinking of his mercy to him, says, Oh, I hope, it's my wish, that when he stands before the Lord, he will find mercy. And then he closes the section by reminding Timothy of his faithful service, Nesiphorus' faithful service when he was at Ephesus. You know well all the service that he rendered at Ephesus. In fact, you could, you could translate this, you know better than me. And I think the reason for that is Paul spent so much time, I mean, Timothy spent so much time in Ephesus. And so not only, this wasn't some flash in the pan for Nesiphorus, this wasn't just one bold, courageous act, but this was the culmination of a life of faithfulness. And this is, of course, what Paul's trying to stir Timothy up to do. Look back in again in verse 6, chapter 1. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flames the gift of God. Well, God's gifts given to Timothy are there for him to serve one another. You remember our series on spiritual gifts. We're gifted so that we can serve for the good of the body. So Paul wants Timothy to be useful for service, and he's giving him this model of courage and faithfulness and loyalty, and service. And there's an implicit exhortation. Be like Anesiphorus. Don't be like Phygelus and Hymogenes. And so he reminds him of the faithful service of this man. 
I, I think all of us here want to be useful to the Lord. We want to be faithful. We want to be found to have guarded what's been entrusted to us. So in our third point, I want to look at the convicting example to follow. A convicting example to follow. Now, even though we ended the text at the end of point two, there's a clear and implicit exhortation here. Paul hasn't just brought these two contrasting examples up for no reason, but at the culmination of, a, of writing about not being ashamed and of trusting in God's power, and being bold and willing to suffer. He gives two examples, one negative, one positive, with the implicit command, Timothy, don't be like them, be like Anesiphorus. And so I think there's that same implicit instruction for us. We can learn. And I want to try to tie this whole section together with the few minutes we have remaining. How do you do this then? And I trust that you don't want to end up like Phygelus and Hymogenes, that you don't want to end up like the this, the seed that was planted on rocky soil and when the sun comes out and the going gets tough, it dies. But you want to be faithful. You don't want to be fearful. So how do you do that? Well, we've got to follow this example first, point A, unashamed and unafraid. Unashamed and unafraid. And we'll get to how in a minute, but this is what we've got to be striving for. Unashamed and unafraid. Verse 7 through 8. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power. Notice that contrast. If we're walking in the spirit, if we're controlled by the spirit, we're not, we're not going to be controlled by fear. Unafraid and unashamed. And that notice of shame peppered through here. Verse 8. Do not be ashamed about the testimony of the Lord. Verse 12. Which is why I suffer as I do but I am not ashamed. And then finally, Anesiphorus in verse 16, he was not ashamed of my chains. So if we're to be useful, if we're to be faithful, then we've got to strive to be unafraid and unashamed. Fear will give rise to shame, which will give rise to falling back. So unashamed and unafraid. Second, the only way we're going to be unashamed and unafraid is confident in the power of God. And we see that first back in verse 7. God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. You're not going to be able to do this in your own strength. In fact, if you're a Christian and you are fearful, controlled by fear, timid, afraid to open your mouth and speak God's truth, I would suggest that you may be walking in your own strength to some degree. But if, if you will let the Spirit guide your life, if you will let the Spirit direct your feet, if you will, as Paul says in Ephesians, be filled, controlled with the Spirit, the Spirit the Lord has given us is not a spirit of fear. It's not. He's not. And so we've got to be confident in that. And so we can look at things coming up. We can look at trials and say, there's no way I could handle that. You're right. There is no way you can handle that. There's no way I can draw my next breath without the power of God at work. But trusting in the power of the Spirit, I can. And that word for power shows up a second time. Last week, Pastor Daniel pointed this to us. The exact same word is in verse 12, which is why I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Now, that word able is the same word for power, ability, authority. And so what Paul says is this, I know 
the living God. I know him. And so I trust his power to protect me. I trust his power to to guard me. I don't need to spend all my time guarding myself, protecting myself. Because I'm trusting in his power to guard and entrust me. I've entrusted myself to him. He is able. He is powerful to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So confident in the Spirit who he's given his power and confident in God the Father's power to not let us slip through his hands, to not let trials come to us that we cannot bear, but rather to guard us. Point C, holding firmly to the word. So how are we going to be faithful? How are we not going to be ashamed? Well, we got trusting God's power. we got to hold firmly to the word. Paul says that to Timothy in verse 13. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So Paul says, I want you to follow this doctrine. I want you to guard this doctrine. We're to hold fast and, and hold to the word and we're to protect and guard the word. That's, that's how we're going to do it. Paul sees that as an instrumental and necessary piece for Timothy to be useful, for Timothy to be unashamed, and for Timothy to be courageous. Holding firmly to the word. Point D, willing to suffer and serve. Willing to suffer and serve. Now we've heard a lot about suffering in the past few weeks. And part of the reason is because the Christian life is a call to suffer. There are many today who want to say it is not. There are many today who want to argue, in fact, you can have your best life now, that you can be prosperous and healthy. And they apparently have not read what the Apostle Paul says, that all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. And so Paul suffers, and he calls Timothy to suffer. And we, as Christians, have been called to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Sufferings all through here. Verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Verse 12, Which is why I suffer as I do. Paul's suffering for the gospel. He's calling Timothy to suffer for the gospel. And if we're unwilling to suffer, if our natural default mechanism is move away from discomfort, move away from hard things, move away from suffering, well, then we are operating in a a spirit of fear. It's not to say that self-preservation is a bad thing, but for the Christian, there will be times, there are times when we move into and towards what is uncomfortable. We move towards what is difficult. We move towards suffering. And if you're unwilling to suffer, then you will be unfaithful. Because all who desire to live a godly life will suffer. And you must be willing to serve. Again, that's presupposed back up in verse 6. Paul encouraging Timothy to fan into flames his gift to serve. The reminder of the service that Onesiphorus rendered at Ephesus. It's not about you and it's not about me. I'm willing to suffer to serve you all. Serve the Lord and to to bless the body, to serve the lost. And if you're not interested or willing to do that, if you're looking out for number one, you're not willing to suffer and you don't want to spend your life for other people, well, 
and I feel sorry for you. Because the Apostle Paul not only says this suffering is difficult, but he also says this is the greatest life, knowing Christ is better than anything the world has to offer. We sang about it earlier, that all our best things we count as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Willing to suffer and serve. And doing this, not for our own stupidity or our own sin or our own issues, but for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the gospel. Paul says that clearly. Let's look to uh, verses... 8 through 12. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to life through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. Paul is suffering not because he's a jerk, not because he has outstanding debts. He's suffering because he loves the gospel. And this is a good point to pause. We've been talking about being ashamed and unashamed of the gospel. And you might, you might be a visitor here. You may not be sure what I'm talking about. And right here, it's laid out. But let's just go through it. We all had a sentence of death hanging over our heads. Deservedly. Because of our sin. Each and every one of us has, has from our mother's womb gone astray. We've, we've done our own thing. We've been our own master. We have not wanted to submit ourselves. We have not wanted to be obedient. And we tend to think of sin just as it hurts other people, but, but if there is a holy God, and there is, and the greatest sin is, is, is what we do to him. And so we can live nice moral lives completely blowing God off and offend him. Don't just think of sin as things that hurt other people. Think of thing, sin as that which offends and hurts God. So every one of us has this sentence of death hanging over us. And this, this passage says that Christ came and abolished death. Well, how did he do that? The Lord Jesus Christ came and he died on a cross. And on the cross, he took our sins upon him. Justice was metered out fully, perfectly upon the spotless Son of God. And he died for us, for any wrong that he had done. And three days later, he rose from the grave. And now this message of forgiveness is proclaimed to all who will turn to him, all who will trust in him, all who will repent and believe and embrace the Lord by faith. And, and we're forgiven not on the basis of anything we do. Paul says that clearly, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works. If you're trusting and I live a good life, I do the best I can, it's not going to cut it. It won't. Not because of good works, but by his own purpose, and grace. It's a matter of belief. It's a matter of faith. It's a matter of trusting. Now, faith, as we'll see, belief will lead to certain lifestyles. We can see the faith of Vanessa Forrest lived out. We can see the unbelief of those in Asia and Phygelus and Homogenes lived out, but we're saved by faith. Paul suffers for the gospel. And if you have not heard this before. If, if you have questions, please talk to me. Please talk to one of the elders, Pastor Daniel, afterwards. Because we're passionate about the gospel as well. So Paul suffers for the sake of the gospel. And he also needs to be willing to suffer 
for the sake of the church. And I'm just closing here by thinking of the impact that the fear and the cowardice and the shame of those in Asia had upon Paul. See, it's not just a matter of your own reward and how many crowns you're going to get in heaven. Your own faithfulness or your own faithful, faithlessness will have a ripple effect on all those around you. And on the one hand, you can be used by the Lord as an as a instrument in his hands, a refreshment for other believers, an encouragement for other Christians, or you can be the cause of great sorrow and anguish and pain for others. We suffer for the sake of the gospel, and we suffer for the sake of each other. We, we follow this example. So in, in closing, and I'll, I'll call the worship team to come up now for our final song. I just want it to be our prayer that we would be the unashamed, that we would be those who are trusting in God's power, who are holding firmly to the word, who are willing to suffer, willing to serve for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the church. As the worship team comes up, let's have a word of prayer and then we'll sing. Lord God, we just pray that you would have your way with us, that you would mold us to people like Onesiphorus and to people like Paul, people who, who love your praise more than the praise of man, who fear you more than they fear man, who love your gospel more than they love comfort, love your people more than they love their own ease. Lord, make us into those type of people useful for your service, Lord God. Don't let us shrink away in fear. Don't let us cause pain and allow the world to slander your gospel and your son. In Jesus' name, amen.